0: Valencia versus Barcelona, gluten-free beer, and to bread or batter your bacalao. This week, we're dining in Lisbon with city nerd Ray Delahanty.
1: Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences, this is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.
0: I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is where we explore the great cuisine of the world at DestinationEatDrink.com and here on the Destination Eat Drink podcast. And this week... We're at a Lisbon restaurant called Rice Me with Ray Delahanty, creator of the YouTube channel City Nerd. We talk about his urbanism and the food he's enjoyed in Spain and Portugal as he's traveled through the Iberian Peninsula for the last three months, including the monster sandwich he tackled in Porto.
1: Called Francisina's, which yeah. is a- the, 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 the monster <laughs> sandwich. Yeah, I had to do it. A right? thousand
0: calories per oh, serving. Oh my
1: gosh. <laughs> What is it? So it's two huge pieces of bread. is it, it have port wine in it? First uh, topped with cheese. Yeah. It's, well, yeah <laughs> melted cheese on, on the top. The cheese was before or after the other stuff. <laughs> and then yes, on yes.
0: top goes a, depending on where you go, is a, like a spicy tomato sauce. Yeah. Some of them make it with uh, a beer, um, maybe with the port wine. I'm not sure. Hmm. Um, it's been a while. It's been a few years since I've had one.
1: <laughs> but that's about the amount of time you need in between them, I think,
0: <laughs> to, to recover. fully digest yeah. it yeah. <laughs> to run through your system. Right. All that's coming up in just a moment. But first, if you enjoy Destination Eat Drink, do me a favor and give us a five-star review. It really helps the show reach a wider audience. And thank you so very much. Ray Delahanty is the brains behind the great YouTube channel, City Nerd. His videos about urbanism, city planning, livability, and the insanity of car dependence routinely rack up quarter of a million, even half a million views on YouTube. I'm a fan. I watch all his vids when they come out. And what I think makes City Nerd so popular is Ray's down-to-earth, laid-back style that is both approachable and self-deprecating. It's also a wealth of info. So when I found out Ray was coming to Portugal, I invited him to lunch in Lisbon and Ray told me, sure, but that he's gluten-free. So we went to a restaurant called Rice Me, a place I've wanted to visit for quite a while, but hadn't got to yet. So this was a great opportunity. And Ray and I sat down and ate and talked about city planning and urbanism, a topic I've been very interested in since moving to Europe. And digesting this different way of life, especially when it comes to my daily interactions with the city where I live, namely living without a car and navigating that lifestyle. Of course, Ray and I also talk a lot about food. He's got a unique take on travel since he's gluten-free, so we talk about how he deals with being GF while on the road, as well as some of the delicious dishes he's enjoyed traveling through Spain and Portugal, including a great meal that we had together at Rice Me. Okay, I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. Ray Delegante, City Nerd. Welcome to Destination, eat, drink. It's great to have you face to face in person here in Lisbon.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks. We're,
0: so, I should tell people first off, we are at this cafe in Lisbon called Rice Me, and we're sitting outside on the patio. It's next to a fairly busy street, so folks are going to hear traffic noise. That's just part of uh, being live here, but I love doing these live one-on-ones, not doing it over Zoom, not doing it over Skype. We're sitting here face-to-face, and we're going to be enjoying a meal together, so thanks for doing this while you're in town.
1: Yeah, and what better way to do it than with uh, the sounds of the city behind us, right?
0: Yeah, exactly, because you call yourself an urbanist, and... I'm curious as to how you define
1: that term urbanist. What does it mean to you? Um, it's an interesting question because I myself did not know what it meant or hadn't formulated my own definition until probably several months after I'd started working on my channel. Um, and this is coming from someone who, you know, I have like 15 years of background in you know, urban planning and traffic engineering. Um, And so I'd heard the term urbanist before, but not in the way that you typically hear it used now. And so what I quickly discovered um, as my channel grew was that, yes, there was this subculture of people who call themselves urbanists. And kind of the way I think of it is an urbanist is someone who thinks of the city as kind of an ideal form for human settlement and human organization. It's more efficient on a per capita basis for things like transportation, water, sewer, electricity. Um, People who live in dense cities tend to emit less CO2, those kinds of things. So... That's kind of my working definition of urbanist, but it isn't necessarily the definition. I think, I think it, uh, you'll, you'll get a hundred different definitions from a hundred different people if you ask them.
0: So you talk about efficiencies when you talk about, I don't know, uh, economies of scale and things like that. But what about this idea of also livability and walkability and access for the people who actually live in the city? Yeah,
1: I mean, all those things go together. Um, So Mm -hmm. when you talk about transportation efficiency, um, you know, if if I want to go to the grocery store or if I want to go to the library or I need to go to the doctor, you know, if if you live in a dense city neighborhood, there's a good chance you're going to be able to walk to all those things, which is great in a number of ways. You're not putting more traffic on the street. You're not emitting more CO2. Um, You're getting some exercise. There are all kinds of benefits that come with having walkable neighborhoods. And you can call that livability and quality of life. Um, I would see it that way. I don't necessarily want to impose my values on people who might not think of a walkable area as more livable. But I think think it's a fair way to, to think of it.
0: And we're in Lisbon here. And I'm looking right across the street. There's the metro stop. I mean, it's literally, I don't know, 100 feet away from us, the entrance to the metro stop. I don't live in Lisbon. I live in a small city that's, uh, you know, 45 minutes to an hour away from here. But when I came out here this morning, super easy to get to. I walked to the uh, bus slash train station, the transport depot in my town, hopped on a bus. I could have hopped on a train. They're both coming up, up this way. And then from there, hopped on the subway. The metro popped out here, and I'm literally steps away from the place that we were going to meet. And that, to me, is the big difference about now living in Portugal. You talk about ease of use. We live in a, a a small city. There's about 100,000 people in the city where I live. Yet, we don't have a car. We walk literally to the green market every day. It's a 10-minute walk from our apartment. We walk to bars and restaurants. Every place we walk because we don't have a car. So I think this is this is what... So we're splitting semantic hairs when we talk about urbanism versus livability versus walkability. It all kind of goes into the same Venn diagram, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that's true. Um, and, you know, the, the, the difference you outlined there is... That's kind of a crucial one. If you think about cities the size of Lisbon that are in the U.S., they're going to be a bit all over the map in in terms of whether you can actually use subways or elevated trains or what we call a grade-separated transit to get where you need to go. You know, if you live in Boston or San Francisco or D.C., which are maybe around the size of the Lisbon metro area, you're probably going to do okay, but if you live in Dallas or Houston, which I think are probably a bit larger than the Lisbon metro area, you're just not going to be able to use transit in any effective way. And that's doubly true or more when you talk about smaller cities that are outside the core city, like the one that you live in. Um, I, My experience from having been traveling in Spain and Portugal in the last three months is that it's pretty easy to get to a smaller city outside of the core city on a commuter train or a regional train. They run frequently, they're fast, they're reliable, and we do have commuter train networks in the U.S., but they're usually only in the very largest cities, and they usually don't run that frequently to where they're as convenient as what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, that was kind of my point when I came here today. I didn't have to plan ahead to be like, all right, I'm going to grab this train to this stop and then I'm going to do this over here. I walked to the transit station and I knew whatever was there, whatever the next thing that was leaving, bus or a train, I'm agnostic, I don't care. And I really didn't even care which part of the city it came to because I could hop on the metro and I knew I could get here pretty easily. Um, And I want to talk about your experience being in Portugal and being in Spain. But first, I want to talk about North American cities, because on your YouTube channel, City Nerd, you spend a a decent amount of time railing on the um, city design of North American cities, of their livability, of their walkability, etc. Oh, here comes some of our food terrific thank <laughs> fantastic. you
1: fantastic
0: we got our covert ah beautiful mm. yeah, lovely
1: super this is gluten-free huh wow mm, that works great beautiful wow perfect all
0: right so i'm i'm gonna let you look at this for a second yeah. <laughs> but i did want to i did want to answer yeah. this question real quick before we dig in here um you spend a lot of time criticizing North American cities. So I'm curious, what do North American cities do particularly well? And what do they, if anything, and what do they do particularly poorly?
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> my my inclination is to be kind of sarcastic about the first half of that question. I mean, <laughs> American cities are pretty good if you're determined to have a car and accomplish all your errands, by car, um, no matter how short or long the trips are. Um, America is going to be pretty good for you. Um, you know, People complain about traffic, but I haven't really seen traffic in U.S. cities that matches a couple of the instances I've seen since I've been over here in Spain and Portugal. Um, the streets are built relatively wide. And parking is pretty abundant. You know, people complain about parking in the U.S. I don't see anywhere near the parking issues in the U.S. that you would have if you were trying to park your car at home in, say, Valencia, where every, every street face that allows parking is just jam-packed with cars that are parked bumper to bumper and sometimes, in some cases, double-parked. Um, and you don't see anything like the amount of surface parking lots in European cities than what you see in the U.S. In the U.S., we use enormous amounts of our real estate for just the storage of personal vehicles. Um, so, you know, that's kind of my, I guess that's more of my criticism of the U.S. transportation system. It really has been designed um, around the automobile with you know, people who are walking or taking transit or biking um, or kind of afterthoughts that try to get, you know, the agencies try to accommodate them after the fact, but that's not really any way that you can do transportation <laughs> planning. As far as what U.S. cities really do well, as far as transportation and livability, you know, I, it's it's really hard to say. Um, I really there, there are U.S. cities I really enjoy being in. I will, you know, New York is great. I even enjoy being in Los Angeles to a certain extent. Some of the neighborhoods are great. There are some great. Um, locations within otherwise objectionable cities you can live in, but that's kind of the problem: is you have to be in very specific areas in order to live a life car-free, and you know to be able to walk to accomplish your daily errands. Whereas in Spain and Portugal, in Spanish and Portuguese cities, uh, you're more likely to be able to do that just about anywhere. Well, Ray. I'm going to, I've tortured you long enough. I'm going to let you dig in. We're going to. We can talk. I mean, I don't know if we talked about what we're eating. Oh, yeah, whatever, definitely. But, um, yeah. Uh, so, so one thing that's very, very difficult to find, and we can talk about this, but it tends to be central to my trip planning is trying to find really cool gluten-free dishes that I've never had before, like things that I haven't been able to eat for 18 years because that's how long I've been diagnosed as, a, as gluten intolerant. Um, and one of those things is fried fish, like really good fried fish. And I've been able to find it a couple of times on this trip. And now I've got something really good looking in front of me. It's bakalau, which is codfish, right. um, fried, sort of like fish and chips style. But um, but well, I'll i just have to bite into it because I always got some herbs and yeah. The, and so give
0: give it a batter. try, and I'll describe to folks what we're talking about. So, um, like I said, this restaurant's called Rice Me, and the uh, I. I'm not sure the dish you got, but I, it's uh, it's bacalao, patatel de bacalao, basically. Yeah. And, well. and so if you imagine, um, you've got the uh, bacalao, which is the codfish, and then it's mm. kind of uh, minced, and then usually they'll add an egg, and then uh, um, they'll bread it and deep fry it.
1: Yeah. See, now I didn't know that was coming. I thought I thought it was a breaded, battered piece of fish, but yeah, it's like a min- it's it's a minced preparation. Oh, this is delicious. Um, yeah, and you, you often, if you do manage to find some sort of fried fish or other kind of fried food, it tends not to be uh, fluffy or pillowy like this at all. So this is really interesting and really good. To me, that also looks different
0: than the ones that I normally see, which are more, that looks more like a tempura batter, mm-hmm. whereas normally you see them breaded. Mm-hmm. Like um, if you imagine like a rice ball or something like that that you might get in Italy, uh, yeah. an arancini, that looks more like a tempura. So it's a little bit of a different spin than you might see at a traditional Portuguese restaurant, right. but it looks very, very good. I'm glad you're happy with it. <laughs> I am.
1: Yeah, like I said, I, I often organize my travel itineraries not like my whole trip or like which city I'm going to go to, but when I get to a city, I try to identify places that have interesting gluten-free items that have, are just hard to find. Um, keep in mind, I, I spent the last year living in the Las Vegas area and the U S um, which has a great restaurant scene, but it's, really it's got a really terrible scene for people who are gluten intolerant which mm. is, just kind of surprises me because there should be a ton of variety there and there is but just not for people who are gluten intolerant i spent the previous odd number of years in portland oregon which is fantastic for for gluten-free eating they have great gluten-free breweries great bakeries um they had a fried fish place that i was a huge fan of for for many years um so when, when i travel I, I try to identify these places and, and, uh, and give them a shot. And then they kind of become um, really treasured memories of, of the places I've visited. Nice.
0: So how have you found Portugal and Lisbon specifically for gluten-free dining? Because it was, like we talked about, the uh, pastel de bacalao, breaded. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, bread is such an important part of the Portuguese diet. I would imagine it's not all that easy.
1: Yeah, it's been a little tougher in Portugal than it was in Spain, to be honest. Um, and part of it, I think, is a little bit the food culture. Although the Spanish do enjoy having bread with just about every meal, as well. But the awareness, the awareness, seems a little bit higher in Spain than it is in Portugal. And then uh, the the other item, the how do you pronounce the the pastes donata pastel donata, pastel donata. pastel pastel uh those are uh you know those are on the must try list for anybody who comes to portugal i would think um but it's extremely hard to find a gluten-free one or maybe a good gluten-free one um did manage to find one at uh is it zarzuela i think done by caista caista sodra the yeah. train station to Castro.
0: right down by the river
1: yeah yeah um and so that was good i got a, got a couple of those those were tasty um so but but yeah it's been it's been hard to find those places it's been hard to find i did i did find a gluten-free bakery but they didn't really make a variety of bread it was more it was more pastries and and kind of heavy dessert items and i like those but but often when i'm traveling i'm looking for like some sort of gluten-free bakery that just makes baguettes and Croissants and rolls, and you know, maybe maybe some some sweeter things too, but haven't really identified that in in Lisbon yet.
0: These guys, we got a uh, gluten free bread here with our with our meal, and um, it's it's not bad. I've also had gluten free uh, rice rice bread at a place called Organi hmm. which is a which is a nice place. I really enjoyed it there. So. It's out there. It's definitely not common. It's not something that you'll find typically here in Lisbon. Um, Any other dishes that you found uh, besides bakery type dessert type stuff that you've had in Lisbon that you really liked?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, I love... Seafood and rice. I mean, it's hard to go too wrong with that. They can introduce wheat flour into a stew, um, so you have to watch out for it a little bit. But I think I had—I do like octopus. Um, so I had a, was an octopus um, Azores island style, which was kind of in like a tomato, kind of like a tomato paste slash broth. It's a little spicy, not too spicy. Um, and that was very good. Had that down in the uh, hmm, district. I, I, I can't remember exactly where that was. Um, but that was delicious. So you can't go too wrong with seafood, and I do love seafood. Um, I would say uh, I did do a week in Porto before coming to Lisbon. I managed to find a restaurant that makes gluten free, I think they're called Francisina's, which yes. is a. Uh, the, the 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 monster sandwich yeah, <laughs> yeah i had to do it right?
0: 8000 calories per oh, serving oh my <laughs>
1: gosh what is it so it's two huge pieces of bread and so they do it gluten free they've got gluten free bread and then i don't know what all it's got on it it's got like it's got like some sort of steak like a, a sirloin like kind of medium thin sliced sirloin it's got Portuguese sausage on it and then it's got I think it's also got a ham on. It. I don't know, it's just got and it probably yeah. isn't completely consistent from place to place. But it's right. got at least three layers of like heavy meat on it. Yes, And then but it's 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 in a bath of like boiling is it have port is it port wine in it? First uh, topped with cheese. Yeah, it's well, yeah, <laughs> melted cheese on in was before or after the other stuff. <laughs> and then yes, on yes.
0: top goes a depending on where you go, is like a spicy tomato sauce. Yeah. Um, And that's... If you talk to people from Porto, like, that's the differentiation between it. It's like, where you go, a lot of people say where you go depends on which sauce you like on top. Like, the meat is almost... Secondary, because mm-hmm. you know you're going to get this giant stack of meat on it. It's really about what your preference is for that sauce. So some people like it a little spicier. Some of them make it with uh, a beer, um, maybe with the port wine. I'm not sure. Um, it's been a while. It's been a few years since I've had one.
1: But <laughs> that's about the amount of time you need in between them, I
0: think, to, to recover, to fully digest it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to run through your system. Right. All right. Now I can, it's been four years, now I can go back. Actually, we are going to Porto uh, soon with my brother, so I'm sure I'm going to get another one of those yeah. those monsters. Luckily, there'll be three of us, we can split it three ways, <laughs> yeah, and kind of have it'll to. only be like one day's worth of caloric intake
1: right. for us. <laughs> well, for several days, I think I was walking by cafes and seeing people eating these things, and also the smaller sandwiches, what are they called? the, 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 the Bifana. Bifanas, yeah. And they also gluten free ones of those too. I got I got to try that. And they're much more modestly sized and manageable. But I spent several days walking by and seeing people eating these enormous, crazy sandwiches. I'm like, yeah, you know, I just I just kind of feel left out. I got to do it. <laughs> so so I, so yeah, I, I did it. And uh, yeah, I don't think I ate anything the rest of the day. No, it's how you couldn't? There'd be no way. Insane. That that's that's putting a lot of a uh, that's a lot to ask of your digestive system. Yeah, yeah, but delicious. So
0: how did you find port porto from an urbanist standpoint? Cause we were there in uh, 2019 and I thought the transit was, uh, was really good there. Um, porto's not as big as Lisbon, but, um, I found it pretty, uh, user friendly, although we did do a lot of walking there. Um, I enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. Um, well, interestingly, so I've got, <laughs> I release a video every Wednesday on my YouTube channel, City Nerd, and this next, I don't know if this, your episode will come out before or after, I guess that's tomorrow, um, <laughs> uh, Wednesday, The wherever we are, the last Wednesday of April. So it's going to, it's going to focus on Porto and transportation, but also tourism, I think. But, but I did ride the, um, uh, the Porto Metro quite a few times. Um, It's what we actually call a, it's a light rail system, meaning for the most part it operates at grade, like on arterial streets. And so um, it has to cross at traffic signals, things like that. So it has to interact with regular vehicle traffic to a certain extent, which is not optimal, but it's also usually appropriate for a city the size of Porto, which is, I don't know, like a million and a half in the metro area. That's usually smaller than the point where you'll see like a fully grade separated metro, like a subway or an elevated train. Um, But the thing about the Porto system, and you will see this sometimes, but they did underground it through the center of the city where you have the most congestion and the most bottlenecks. Um, And so that makes it a lot more efficient and a lot more reliable than it would be if it, if there was some way they ran it at grade um, you know, on the surface <laughs> through downtown. So I was pretty impressed by that. And in the video I have coming out, I actually compare it to the light rail system I'm most used to, which is in Portland, Oregon, which does not run underground in downtown Portland. It runs at grade, and that's the source of a lot of delay. I wouldn't say necessarily um Necessarily unreliability, but they have to they have to really slow the schedule down to accommodate the amount of traffic signals, um, and stops that they accommodate um, in the downtown area. And there've been years of discussion about you know, what would it take to put the light rail underground in Portland. Um, and I just find it very funny because a city like Porto has so many more hills, and it's so much older of a city that likely has so many other archaeological ar- archaeologically interesting things you can disturb underground it should be much more difficult to build something like that in porto yeah they did it and but we can't do it in the u.s even in a fairly progressive city like portland right I just find it interesting
0: y- yeah i i was thinking about this since we moved to portugal because um like i told you before we turned on the microphones Uh, Karen and I have been kind of vagabonds up until we landed in Portugal and we lived in several U.S. cities, some of them better than others as far as urbanism goes. And one thing that I found was this constant argument in the U.S. that we can't create good public transit because of dot, 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 fill in the blank, Mm -hmm. whatever the reason is. The streets aren't big enough. We have to accommodate traffic. We can't in Austin where we're not going to go underground. Um, it's too expensive, blah, blah, blah. Then we get to Portugal and in a place like Lisbon that's close to our house. This has, in theory, this has all of those same arguments that you would have. It's an old city. The streets are way too narrow to accommodate it, blah, blah, blah. Yet they're able to do it and make it extremely user-friendly. So it just kind of crystallized in my mind when we got here. Those arguments fall apart when you compare it to a place like Lisbon.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to understate what the differences are, either culturally or historically, between you know a country like Portugal and a country like the United States. Um, you know, what one thing that you'll definitely notice is it's a lot more expensive to own and operate a car in European countries. The taxes are much higher. The fuel taxes are much higher. The licensing is more expensive. And the tolls. The tolls, the parking is more difficult and I would think more expensive, although I'm not sure about that. And so that's that's kind of part of the equation too. It makes it harder to build political support for really high quality transit like you have in Lisbon definitely and and somewhat in Porto um, when you have you know people who are able to get around relatively easily relatively easily and relatively cheaply with their cars although um, it's kind of debatable Uh, it's yeah I'm of I'm of the opinion that people don't necessarily account for the costs of driving correctly they're kind of hidden you pay monthly payments on your car and then the monthly payments disappear once you pay your loan off and you pay the insurance once a year. So when you drive, oftentimes the only time you notice a cost is when you're filling up at the gas tank and you just don't notice all the costs of depreciation and maintenance and you know, all all the other things that go into it.
0: Yeah. And if you've got an easy pass, you're not digging money out of your pocket every time you use a toll you only see it when your credit card bill comes and maybe you kind of ignore that as well <laughs> i got to say when we sold our car in the in the us and came out here we thought well we'll 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 see how it goes cuz i've had a car since i was 16 years old i've never been without a car my whole adult life and we got here and we said well we'll see how it goes from a walkability, accessibility standpoint. I got to say, not only do I not miss having a car, I'm grateful not having a car because I don't even, these things I don't even think about. Where am I going to park it? How how am I going to, um, how am I going to get from A to B? How much is it going to cost me? What about insurance? How am I going to register it? All of these all of these hurdles that I'm going to have. No, I just go down to the bus station once a month and re up my pass and, you know, easy.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Um, you know, on my social media, on my Instagram or Twitter. Yeah. You know, I kind of let people know what my travel plans are and I post pictures of where I am and I didn't get too much feedback when I was in Spain. You know, I got people saying, Hey, you should see this. You should see that. But man, when I let people know I was coming to Portugal and Lisbon in particular, had all kinds of folks living in the area or, or who were from Lisbon and live in the US now, I guess, um, who said, oh, just, just don't come down too hard on us because we really love our cars in Lisbon. And I'm like, huh. sort of. <laughs> uh, but have you been to the US? You know, cause it's just, I, it's night and day to me. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe Lisbon is relatively more. Car-centric compared to European cities, I don't know that it is. I've been to many European cities, and you know every every European city, even a place like Amsterdam, you know people own cars, particularly if you live in the periphery of the city. Um, but they're just treated differently. Um, you know the streets are narrower. Uh, you know I've, I find the drivers are more respectful of people walking than what I get in the U.S. You know when I'm about if I if, I, if I'm at a crosswalk nine times out of 10 probably more than that probably 49 times out of 50 the car stops for me here in lisbon or it's more like five or six out of 10 well it depends where you are but if you're in vegas it's more like one out of 10 stops (laughs) for you um but but yeah it's it's a night and day difference i the way it was explained to me because i
0: had the same observation that you did ray um that drivers will stop for you when you enter the crosswalk And Portuguese drivers kind of have this, I guess, I can't think of a place I've lived where this reputation is not, oh, the drivers are crazy here. Wherever you go, people are like, oh, the drivers are crazy here. Portuguese drivers have this reputation of of driving very fast and having a certain amount of recklessness. But when I came here, I had the same observation that you did where I said, wow, they stop for you when you're in the crosswalk. The way they were explained to me from Portuguese people, and I heard this more than once, was they really clamp down on finding people if you don't stop for someone in the crosswalk. So now people are very conscious that, hey, you better stop or else it's going to hit you in the pocketbook. And at le- And like I said, we don't have a car. I'm walking everywhere. Pedestrians rule the day, mm-hmm. especially where I live in Lisbon. A little bit less so because it's more touristy, and I think there are a certain number of drivers who have had their last nerve frayed by tourists. But where I live, like, if you walk and someone doesn't stop, you know, you'll let them know, Mm -hmm. and they will inevitably apologize. You know, they'll be like, oh, sorry. You know, you'll see them lean out the window. Oh, sorry, didn't see you. You know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I've only had two occasions and i'm like i said i'm out walking every day i've only had two occasions where i had a bad encounter with a uh with a car um and that's out of thousands and thousands and thousands of crossing <clears throat> crossing yeah. streets so um maybe folks <laughs> what this Ooh, boy um Maybe folks are are being a little bit more conscious of this, um, but also maybe folks are like, you know, there's a different perspective because of the way that they've grown up um, and the way that they've lived their lives their whole entire life.
1: Yeah, there's a concept we talk about in urban planning, um, safety in numbers, and oftentimes we talk about that in terms of bicyclists, like if you could just get more people out biking, they would be more visible, people would be more used to seeing them. Um, and you know, you'd get, you'd get better, better outcomes with your transportation system. You know, people would, um, be less likely to not see a bike in their blind spot, for example. Um, but I think that's doubly true for pedestrians. And it's something I, I think you can observe here. People are people here. I assume probably grow up, uh, being able, being able to walk everywhere and spending a lot more of their time being pedestrians. Um, And, you know, if you live in a city like Lisbon, you know, a lot of times you won't even own a car or you won't primarily use a car to take care of your daily errands. So um, part of it is, I think we call it safety in numbers, or you could just call it empathy, right? You grew up that way. You live that way. um, And so you have empathy with, for, you know, the person who's trying to cross the street in front of you. And I think that's missing in a lot of U.S. cities because there are a lot of Folks who live in, you know, maybe like a sur- suburban area where it's really impossible to walk anywhere that you need to go. So you always drive. You're always behind the wheel. Um, and so you don't have that natural empathy for for other people. You, you're more likely to see them as an obstacle to where you want to go. I mean, you're going to run them over, but you're going to be a little bit less patient and maybe not as forgiving of you know, allowing someone to cross when they have the right away, particularly when it's on forest, like you mentioned
0: let's go back to spain for a minute because you you said you spent how long in valencia were you there um it was it was more than a week uh so it was quite a bit of time whole month yep a whole month yep. wow and valencia is a place i really want to go to we just had friends who returned from valencia and they were just raving about it um how how did you enjoy it, and uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about food from a food standpoint. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> I'm afraid to answer this one because I want to blow Valencia's cover. Um, oh, okay. Because
0: I thought you were gonna you no. were gonna say
1: something negative oh, about no. it because you had this look well, on should. your face like <laughs> I should. It's terrible and nobody should go there. How about that. <laughs> That's,
0: that was what it was like when we first moved to Austin. There were T-shirts that were like. Um, uh, Welcome to Austin. Don't move here was one of my favorite T-shirts, and then another one was, uh, uh, "Don't move to Austin. I hear Dallas is nice." <laughs> you know, I'd I'd
1: put it this way about Valencia. Um, it's a little further south and maybe a bit warmer than Barcelona. It's it's also like Barcelona in that it's on the Mediterranean. There are beaches. It's also like Barcelona in that you know it's got old Roman ruins and really charming old Gothic quarters um, and uh, neighborhoods. What we would call it the exemple. Um Valencia has the same kind of uh, block setup that Barcelona has in certain neighborhoods. It's just um, it's very very differently priced. Than Barcelona is, okay. and it has, and this is the way. I don't know. I, this, this, this is a this is a tough thing. Uh, I would. It has many many fewer tourists and expats than right. Barcelona. And i if I was uh, a native Valencian, I prefer to keep it probably (laughs) um so no one wants to turn into barcelona i'm trying i'm trying so i'm trying not to yeah i'm trying to be diplomatic about this but i really i really did enjoy valencia it's not it's not as easy to navigate um if you don't speak spanish or like catalan although people don't really speak catalan there although it's on all the all the signage um it's not as easy like lisbon is fairly simple to navigate i think you don't really have to know portuguese i mean it's appreciated um but lots of people speak english here that's not true in valencia it is in um particular quarters that are more more often frequented by tourists but in a lot of the neighborhoods uh, you better go in there knowing some spanish otherwise you're not going to be able to order food they're not going to know what you're saying. Um, And they might even, I don't know, they might perceive you as rude, although I found people pretty friendly there. The way it was explained to me,
0: the Portuguese say, when so many of them know English because back in the day, all of the movies and TV shows that came over here were in the native language with subtitles. Whereas in Spain... They dubbed it into Spanish. So everyone learned English by TV and movies. And you talk to anyone who's like 40 and over, they'll tell that story again and again. And sure, you go into smaller cities and whatnot, even in our even in our city, which is, uh, you know, fairly big by Portuguese standards. There are a lot of uh, people who don't speak uh, English. And that's great because I get to practice my Portuguese But for the most part, there is a much wider, uh, knowledge of English in, uh, Portugal in Spain, which is, which has been my experience and, uh, you know, uh, confirmed by folks who live there. Yeah.
1: I I had it explained actually the same way by the guy who cut my hair uh, before Porto. I spent a week in Tavira down on the Algarve coast. Um, guy cut my hair down there. He spoke completely flawless English, um, he, he joked when I walked in because when I made the reservation online, I'd put a note that said, I don't speak Portuguese. And he was like, nobody here speaks Portuguese, <laughs> well, at least in Tavira. You know, it's a, tour, it's a very tourism-oriented kind of beach community, although a, a very charming historic town in its own right. But he explained it the same way. He said, if you go to an American movie in Spain, it's dubbed, same in France. Uh, in Portu- in Portugal it's in English with Portuguese subtitles And I was like huh would that really make that much of a difference but he said he gave me the same story and so <laughs> a couple of days later I said hey I'm gonna go to the movies <laughs> so, <laughs> right so I did it's like oh okay all the movies are gonna I mean I- you can you can find uh, movies in English not without that much too difficulty too- that much difficulty in-, in other countries but they're all going to be in English or yeah. well, at least the English language movies are
0: right? yeah it's it's great um so but what about in valencia what about the food because i'm i'm interested because i have not been there um it's definitely on our list we're probably going to go there within the next year or so but i'm interested as to uh what it's because you've been to barcelona too those
1: two cities are often closely linked to each other Mm-hmm. yeah i mean well for, first of all kind of going back to kind of the mode Uh, I mean, when I travel, I kind of identify those gluten-free places. I ended up staying uh, within blocks of, and I kind of didn't know this when I booked the place, but a just fantastic gluten-free bakery. And I think I had Mm -hmm. some really clever name, like Panaderia Gluten-Free or something like that. (laughs) It's very easy to find on Google. And I always go into a place like that thinking, yeah, they won't have much selection or it's just going to be a bunch of super sweet pastries or things that are obviously gluten-free in the first place. And no, they had everything. They had, they, not only they have like baguettes and rolls and croissants, but they had, um, uh, what do we call them? N- uh, Napolitanas? Um, they're they're kind of like puffy pastries oh, okay. with, and often they have like chocolate or kind of like Nutella stuff on the inside. Just so good because it's so hard to get like pillowy, flaky stuff that's gluten-free. So I got that, and then uh, they had a whole bunch of other stuff like that. They had had ones that had, like, ham and cheese in them. And so I felt like I was eating more traditional Spanish-type breakfast food instead of, like, making, like, eggs and bacon at home or something like that. Um, And so the other thing is, so Valencia is obviously very famous for paella. Right. Um, And so they have the rice fields there. That is a gluten-free dish, so I can do well on that. But it tends to be associated with kind of touristy restaurant locations. Um, it's not that easy to find good paella, but you can. Um, and so I did enjoy that. Um, but more than that, and I do I do enjoy Madrid, too. I, I spent some time in Madrid on this trip. I do enjoy just very typical Spanish tapas, you know, patatas bravas, the ensaladilla rusa, um, what else, the, the Spanish tortilla kind of uh, yes. The little potato omelet things. Very, just very simple dishes that go with a glass of beer. And by the way, one thing is so they do, they, su- there is a Superbach, a gluten free version of Superbac, which is the, the Portuguese, yeah, the biggest Portuguese beer. Portuguese Budweiser. It's the Portuguese Budweiser. There is a gluten free version of that. I just don't care for it very much. I don't know. I, I feel like I shouldn't be picky, but pretty much every, uh, Major Brewer in Spain does make a gluten-free beer. So like Mao, Estrella Galicia, San Miguel, Cruz Campo, and Dara, uh, Estrella Dam, which is what I'm having now. Yeah, um, you got a gluten-free beer? Yeah, so that's out of Barcelona, I believe. Okay. But all these are regional beers, so like Mao is Madrid, San Miguel is Malaga, Cruz Campo is Sevilla. Um, all of them, except for Alhambra, I think, does not make a gluten-free beer, but all the other ones do, so... You know, it's kind of the other thing. It's like, it's, it's easy to find just a tapas place where you can have just a really light, very uh, unassuming, I don't know. I'm trying to find the right word. It, it's a Budweiser type yeah. beer experience, but, but it's nice to have like just a cool crisp kind of light beer with the kind of uh, um, the kind of food that, that, you know, the Spanish like to eat um, as, as kind of like bar food, you know, the, the, the potato items and the, and the fish, you know, the shrimp, um, and the, the the little salads that they make. So, so I enjoy that too.
0: This is a Dara, D A U R A, and this is a gluten-free lager. So it's a it's a light it's a light beer. It's not a, it's not a heavy. It's not a yeah. port. It's not a stout.
1: Yeah, and um, this one's actually pretty easy to find in the U.S. Frankly, it's okay. it's, it's been kicking around the U.S. for a long time. Uh, you can't really find the other ones I was talking about in the U.S., but I've been able to have. I've been able to find Dada for, and I think they say Dauda in Barcelona, like that's the Catalan pronunciation. Okay, yeah, they'll look at you weird if you say Dora or Dara, <laughs> um, but if you say Dada in the U.S., like, they have no idea. What you're right, right. So you, have to, you have to pronounce it the right way in the right place. Um, but but yeah, so yeah, again, nice, just crisp beer to have on like a, a warm day, sitting outside on a terrace with you know, with some bar food,
0: and. So I haven't I've never looked for gluten free beer in the U.S. is what's that like? I mean, you mentioned the Spanish beers are relatively easy to find. Are there American brands that have a gluten free
1: line? What's it like looking for gluten free beer there? Um, And again, this is this has been a uh, an 18 year project for me because, you know, before I was diagnosed, I was a pretty. um, uh, I was, I was very into craft the craft beer scene right having grown up I grew up in Seattle uh, moved to Portland and you know craft beer is a huge thing there uh, so you know um, very into trying like new IPAs different kinds of bales farmhouse sales and then you know one day I just wasn't allowed to have that anymore and so um, it, it was very challenging for several years the beers that I was able to find were terrible um, uh, now you can find good uh, craft beers Portland has, like three or four different breweries that make very good gluten-free craft beer Um, it's harder to find over here um, but i have found i did find one place here in lisbon that does carry a gluten-free craft beer in cans Um, that was delicious Um, i was able to find it in several spanish cities i found it in porto as well so you can find it they tend uh well, there are, um, yeah, okay. There, I, I think there's one brewed in Barcelona and one in Madrid that I've found. But often the ones that you find here are from, I don't know, one's from New Zealand. One that I've found many times is from New Zealand, of all places. Um, so you can find it here. Um, they're not always brewed locally, though.
0: So there's actually a guy from Seattle here in Lisbon who started a brewery. Who was one of the very first craft breweries. It's called Dos Corbosch. And he's from Seattle. I've had him on the podcast before. But I don't know if they have a gluten-free option or not. I've, but a lot of places uh, around here do carry their beer. But he's a Seattleite, and he's become uh, very successful, him and his wife, who's actually from the town where we live in Satubal. Um, but my question to you, because I really don't know a lot about gluten-free beer. What grain do they use if they're not using wheat? Is it rice? I mean, I, I don't know what they do.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it varies. It's often rice. Um, some of the better beers I've had are from sorghum. Oh, okay. Um, so you'll often see that. Um, my uh, brother-in-law uh, was a home brewer. I think he still is. And for Christmas, he used to make me a bunch of home-brewed sorghum beer, which which at the time was probably the best gluten-free beer I'd ever had. He did He did it really well. Um, I think if he knew what the industry was going to do, maybe, maybe he would have expanded his operations. Go pro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, because I've been, I've been surprised at the expansion of production and availability of gluten-free beers, at least in the Pacific Northwest and California, I think, and maybe other parts of the U.S. But boy, you could not find it in Las Vegas at all. Just oh. extremely disappointing. Um, so, so when I get back to like Seattle or Portland or I go to California, I always try to seek out those places. So,
0: this has been an incredible trip for you. I mean, you know, spending a month in Valencia—what a absolute treat! And now spending all this time in Portugal. Um, but tell me, what, what's next on the docket? Like, uh, are you, is this the end of the trip? Are you going back to the U.S. after this,
1: and what do you have planned for the future? Yeah, actually, this is the end of the trip. Um, I've got less. A little bit less than a week left in Portugal, and then I'm getting back on an airplane. Yeah, I'm on the. Oh, I think they have a. What do they have? Like a digital nomad visa now? At least in Spain, I'm not sure. if They they do have. have, They
0: just started it here in Portugal too.
1: So, yeah, I was sort of aware that it's not something I intended to do, or something I really intend to do. So, I'm doing the 90 day typical tourist Mm -hmm. visa, and Mm -hmm. so yeah, my 90 days are up if I if I stay until monday they're gonna have to throw me in jail i, I, don't, I don't know what they do no. but but uh that's 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 my 90 days i used my maximum allotted amount of time to uh, really in a way what i've been doing is recovering from having lived for a year in las vegas which is kind of a choice um that i wanted to experience what it was like to live in a very car-oriented Sun belt city but try to do it car free and that's what i did um it was uh, rewarding in a lot of ways and enjoyable, and, and my YouTube channel grew a lot during that time, so I'll always remember that fondly. But it is hard to try to live in a place like that without a car. And there are some things I genuinely like about Las Vegas, but um, your ability to to accomplish day to day tasks without a car or be able to walk around and feel safe, like you're not going to get hit by a car, um, right? that that's not in my list of things that I like about las vegas so i will be returning there um probably just temporarily though because that's where all my stuff is <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's all in a it's all in a storage locker actually i don't know where it is it's in some pod somewhere it's in a pod that they took to an, undiscl- an undisclosed location oh my goodness so i have to i make a phone call and then it shows up wherever i decided to move to so that's okay. the plan yeah i'm kind of i'm pretty nomadic right now and so 90 days on the iberian peninsula is kind of part of that nomad life and then kind of still have to figure out the next step i have some ideas but um, i'm gonna keep them under wraps now i'm just gonna keep my own counsel on those
0: okay well we'll be following you on your youtube channel city nerd and find out what your next uh what your next plan is but i would say this 90 days back in the U.S., we'll see you in three months, I guess, right? <laughs> that's,
1: that's a possibility, isn't it? I, I've just really loved my time over here. There
0: is a, a digital nomad visa in, uh, in Portugal. There's also a D7 visa if you're looking to pursue residency and later citizenship, which is what I'm here on, a D7 visa. And I have a residency here in Portugal and Uh, If I keep my nose clean (laughs) and, uh, you know, don't get in any trouble in five years, I can apply for uh, citizenship in in Portugal as long as I meet certain requirements, one of which is a uh, certain level of fluency in the language, which has been a challenge to say the least. Mm -hmm. But I've got another three and a half years to uh, to master that. Yeah. Well, uh, Ray Delahante City Nerd, thank you so much for being on Destination Eat Drink. I'll let you finish your lunch. It's been great talking to you
1: today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot.
0: Okay, there you go. Gluten-free beer. I'm gonna have to take that one out for a spin. I never even knew it was a thing, but I'll definitely be giving it a try. You can see Ray's entertaining videos on YouTube at City Nerd. I've got links to City Nerd along with Rice Me, the restaurant where we recorded the show in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED two three nine. Well, that'll do it for this week. Next week, the best of Italy from the Amalfi Coast to Sicily, to the underrated city of Turin in Italy. Don't miss that. And until then, you can get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a brand new video. It's about coffee in Portugal. I try eight different coffee drinks in one day in Lisbon, including one made with a local moonshine. I also just posted a story about a unique bread in the Alenteja region of Portugal. You can get all that at DestinationEatDrink.com. Read about the bread at destinationeatdrink.com slash blog. Watch the video by clicking on the videos tab. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter to keep up with all the goings on at Destination Eat Drink headquarters, including the podcast, the videos, the stories. And while you're there, you can also make a contribution to the Destination Eat Drink cause. If you're feeling charitable, just click on the contribution button destination eat drink is distributed by the radio misfits podcast network and a guy who only drinks gluten-free scotch ed silla thanks ed i'm brent peterson i'll see you down the road
1: join us next week for another culinary adventure on destination eat drink a presentation of the radio misfits podcast network